This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. So here I am seeking wisdom from the decaf quest. Hence, uh, I'm reaching out to you for, for the, yeah, yeah, well, the, uh, the, the true thank path. Thank you again for the invitation. And it's uh, the, the, the first thing I told you was, yeah, we, we, I will have to interview you as well because I do have many questions. The first one is, I mean, why the hell do you care about <laughs> this is the no? tr- this but, is the This is the problem with... Int- talking to somebody who does this as well that you're that you're you know you i don't expect the uh the complicated but you got me at the beginning <laughs> yeah why do you care no seriously because like in my case i'm 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 trying as much as possible to, to get the hell out of here asap you know so it's like i don't so i'm i'm, I'm interested and you know you have people like Fa'ur, for example whom you yeah. actually had also on the podcast and these people expats who who for some reason or the other continue to have this connection with Lebanon. Why? I, th- I think, you, well, I'm, I'll answer. Because yeah. that it would be unfair if I didn't. I'll answer. But I'm going, to, I'm going to carefully suggest, having never spoken to you, this is the first time we even, this is the first time we speak, other than a few yeah. chats on, 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 online. I think you do care. Uh, but I think if you're leaving, it's born out of an impossible situation. But I, I think you care. Otherwise, I don't think you would uh, dedicate a lot of your free time to exchanging ideas about one topic in particular. And also the fact that you're persistent on getting good ideas across. And I envy what you're doing, these online courses in philosophy that you've oh. kind of turned away from academia altogether in the yeah. traditional sense and that you're pursuing not, I wouldn't call it an alternative way of education I think it's actually just literally professor and student relationships but on your terms and count me in on your uh, Amsterdam retreat once it's organized I I don't uh, yeah. I don't I mean if if it lines up you'll have me as a registered student and uh right yeah i i think uh, that kind of lesson can only be done by somebody who's putting a lot of time and effort into their career and i see you doing that and i think you're putting as much time and effort into talking about lebanon so that only means to me that you care you care your way but let me answer your question and then you can disagree with me if uh, if uh, if needed It's not that I care. It's not that I have a choice between 
caring and not caring. I don't think it's that. Um, I think it's, there's this uh, issue of fairness, I think, and, and justice. And I'm going to use these words very broadly so that things don't get too depressing in the first section of the, what we speak. I think Lebanon and the Lebanese people and everyone living in Lebanon that are not Lebanese, people in Lebanon for a long time have been treated extremely unfairly. And the good guys are treated the most unfair. And the great people either end up getting killed because they really try, or they end up leaving against their will. This includes yeah. people like us. This includes true heroes as well that we lost. Some of them are very, very, very decent people that should not have died when they died. And that kind of injustice, I think, sorry, injustice, that kind of uh, robbing a nation's soul in front of its people, for me, that's uh, it's not an issue of caring or not caring. This is a duty. I think... Uh, I think it's in my DNA. And I speak as somebody with a limited audience, somebody with limited means. I'm not trying to sound braggadocious here. It's not ego. It's nothing like that. It's that I think life is not worth living otherwise. So in a very small, small way, I take it upon myself to share that type of expression with as many people as possible. And I don't, I don't, sort of, uh, it's not that I have answers or I'm trying to necessarily seek answers. I think for me, sometimes the answers are very clear and sometimes they're not. And that kind of comes out in these conversations. But I don't think it's about that. I think it's about honor, justice, and fairness. And these are things Lebanese have been robbed from altogether. So that's the reason I do variations of this. I do different types of storytelling. But this is sort of, this is an extension of that. I hope that answers the question. Uh, it kind of does. But I mean, haven't you given up already? I mean, maybe I do care a little bit. Uh, because evidently, I'm, I was trying to, to live here. And this is why I came back here in the first place. Yeah, well, I came back after my brief studies abroad. Um, but then you come to a certain point when you think to yourself, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm bored. I see no results. Uh, no one really cares. And I'm not talking about, uh, about, for example, the podcast you're doing or, or the, st or all sorts of storytelling that you're involved in. It's just. this kind of sense of duty you're you continue to put effort into something that is that really doesn't care at a at a at a country level i don't mean like some people do care and they are interested mm, in what mm. you're doing but then what for no i i constantly think about that and i'm like well seriously i give up why do you persist in showing a university that perhaps did you wrong that you can still teach philosophy oh i i i don't think that's uh that would i mean i don't i don't try to show them that i 
still teach philosophy. On occasion, on occasion, you reference them from time to time. You no, no. from time to time, every single time I do that. It's just, <laughs> but, but it's because I I do love to, to troll them. That's that's why. But, okay, uh, but, but it has nothing to do with my oh oh now I see yeah I did tweet once about that maybe yeah yeah yeah, yeah I did <laughs> no particularly that yes uh huh uh huh uh, I know yeah. these are I know these are very different uh, they're, I know they're not necessarily the same story but on an individual level hmm. I think you're trying to you're trying to prove your point that, uh, yes yeah you're right you're right about that yeah well because I kind of agree with you because I feel that uh, those who really want to give back to society one way or the other are just shunned and are forced kind of to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and this is subjective, I don't know if this is shared among people in, in similar situations, I think it's also, you, you, have to find, you have to find a way to make sure that unjust loss is is shown some form of justice, something. Mm. And I, the reason I say this, and I'm trying to not make it too personal here, but this could apply to anybody who's seen serious harm in Lebanon. Yeah. Financial, political, you name it. Societal, all the types of you know, real pain. Um, I think if, if that kind of injustice is left to sort of fade, and it's assumed that it's the norm, that this is just the way things are. I think, uh, I think that would be a, a dishonor to those that, that paid the yeah. ultimate price. Yeah. I, I'll give you something, a very simple story. I, a man that I admired deeply. I never, I, I wasn't a friend, but I was lucky. I sort of crossed paths, if you will, with Samir Asir. And that's, 2005 it's 15 years ago um, I'm very happy that everyone who was impacted by him his wife his daughter his his I mean his his family uh, his students his peers that they always remind everyone that this man didn't deserve to die and that he was taken away at a very young age because of his beliefs in a better country. It's 15 years ago. We're reminded regularly, regularly of this man's name and what he left us with. Yeah. And I think it's because people that were impacted by him take it upon themselves to do it. But there was no trial. There's no criminal that's arrested. There's no, there's no jail cell with the man, with the, with the team that killed Samir Asir. It doesn't exist. So that's... Yeah. That's something Lebanese don't have. Public crime. It could be um, you're robbed of your soul. And I mean that. You're actually, your dignity is taken away from you. There's no way to even assume that there will be justice. True. It doesn't exist in Lebanon. And that's why many people leave, I think, at the end of the day. They yeah. have no justice. And I think if you're not able to seek justice in the usual way that we understand it, meaning a court or a trial or a public display where the guilty party 
punished and you move on, or you try to. If you don't have that, and we don't, you need poetic justice. Yeah. And I, I think everything I do, everything that, that means something to me revolves around that. Somebody like Mike Azar, who's against all hope, against all facts, the man is still trying. Yeah. He's not he's not trying that it's not like he's he just wants the economy to stabilize to the point that we can get an IMF package. Yep. That it's you know, it's rescue. How can you level things to get money? He's trying. He probably will lose more hair. At least he has a beard, so he's you know, he's growing it on that end. But he's he there will I think as long as Lebanese know that they have potential and they had something better i think you'll always see people like this trying yeah like the the other day for example uh uh he's uh, yeah. he's in in the class as well and uh after class we usually have these laid-back discussions as well with uh, oh in your in your philosophy class yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i see yeah, yeah yeah and uh so we were talking about you know uh, people who want to leave and everyone is trying to do that, etc. And, and there comes Monsieur Wael, and uh, <laughs> he's like, "No. If it were for me, I would, I would just go back to Lebanon now." I'm like, "What?" And yes, he was. He went on and on explaining why he would come back to Lebanon because it's yeah. a great place. He, his his family is here, for example. And even though he lost money in the bank because he had money, yeah. he had an account here, etc., and it's all gone now. He's he insists and uh, he argued that if it were for him now, he would just or he would not only retire in Lebanon, he would just come back to live here for good, uh, which is something I also don't understand. Mr. <laughs> Mahmoud, yeah. I want to ask you. I'm, yeah. You said at the beginning that you're looking for a way out now, mm -hmm. but you were still in the country even while things were really bad. I mean, oh it's yeah, not, yeah. So October last year was not, uh, you know, I mean, you 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 survived very very difficult times. Well, I'm I'm going to guess Iyam al Harib came in. You were probably, if not all the time, you spent. A I'm good uh, I'm yeah. So you have uh, an idea. I was born in '89. So, okay, so Echir Sine. I mean, Echir Sine, so I'm, yeah. but the early 1990s were screwed up. Where, it's not like, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, you see, I'm usually along with my friends, those who stayed here, we are normally cynics. We mm. don't, uh, we, we never participated in any protests. We never really paid much attention to uh, what's going on because we always knew there you know it's all just uh an uprising here and there some protests and then it will just calm down eventually october 17 we all thought this was different yeah and then the joke was on us right eventually right. yeah so so october 7 yeah i mean uh i was really hopeful and uh, and we even took the classes uh to downtown uh and we right yeah yeah, and and we yeah. were like, okay, let's let's go there, have a discussion, let's see what's going on, discussing economy and uh, the 
status quo in Lebanon and everything related, well, to philosophy, uprisings and ethics and whatnot. And then bit by bit, this uh, momentum faded out and just Corona happened. And now you feel like there's there's a gloomy mood uh, in, in the country now. I, mean, I don't know. It's just, it's it's weird. And I understand. People are fed up. Why do you do your uh, your podcast? I'm curious. You've had very interesting guests. Uh, some of them I've become friends with thanks to you. In a way, I, I saw them on your show. And you, I mean, these names you're referencing, I, these are people I, I actually admire. And you know, but you also have you have eccentric guests as well. You have you know all types. But they, I'm curious why you do this. I really don't know. Mm. And uh, come to think about it, so. I do have an answer to this because uh, because this is why I chose to do my podcast in, in Lebanese hey, yeah. and not in English. So so I know why I do the podcast because of that and I'll explain it shortly. But before that, it, uh, it was accidental mm. uh, and it started off as a joke. <laughs> yes. And I still remember. Like, so, so what happened was that I was being pushed by people I know to create a YouTube channel, mm. a philosophy YouTube channel. I see. So it was meant to be yeah, so, specifically philosophy. At the yeah. okay, yeah. I didn't know what uh, what content to create at the beginning. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I created this channel, Decaf Quest, and it was there. I it. it uh, I, I created the account on December, I think, 25. And I don't know how, there we were discussing something. Uh, I wrote an article about the, the nerds. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two days later, I think, we were just having, there, there was this thread where I said, okay, sure, anyone would like to, to discuss this further. And then uh, Lab Finance suggested I interviewed Dream, Mahmoud Dream. I see. Yeah. So and really, then, uh, it's by accident you ended up yes. in this. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so at the beginning, it was yeah. I thought, well, you know, I can. I'll. I'll. I'll do because before that, I had interviewed uh, Nasim Talib. Right. Right. But it was it was a very short one because it was particularly directed at you know it were with contextually the the uprisings. Yeah. Uh, he was discussing decentralization as a possible solution to Lebanese yeah. problems uh, of governance and whatnot. And I uploaded it on on another account that I had. I see. Yeah. So to clarify now things. I am involved in a project for the promotion of Lebanese as a language. Uh, I was working in the archives mm. uh, at AUB for, for a year. And by the end of it, I was like, no, Lebanese is a language and we speak <laughs> a different language. And so I created this Twitter account. Lebanese, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Fast forward, then yeah, I, people were interested. We we met up a few times, so yeah. I wasn't even intending to to do anything with it. I mean, 
I was even new to Twitter. I, I had recently created uh, Twitter. So yeah, it was, uh, I interviewed Nassim Talib there, but then I thought to myself, well, you know what? I can do it here because on Belibnini, I don't want uh, to, I can do a podcast, but then it would be only focused on, on language. And then right. I thought, I don't yeah. want to endorse any kind of politics there, or I don't yeah. even like to talk about politics, but it's just uh, to keep it, a purely uh, uh, linguistic account because yeah. I don't know shit. Sen and Bill does all the actual uh, linguistic stuff. Uh -huh. uh, I'm just there to, <laughs> to organize the meetups and stuff. So I thought to myself, well, okay, I can start this podcast. I can interview other people and it can be in Lebanese. Uh, I don't care what you call it, whether Lebanese or Ami or I don't, I don't care. It's just for me, uh, part of the reason why we all have, we, we have this identity problem is because uh, we were taught something at school and we speak something else at home. Mm -hmm. And so this diglossia that we have uh, mm. pushes us to, to start filling the gaps with other languages like yeah. French or English. Your curiosity about language and identity, well, I know it's a big question, so as much as you want to say, the, yeah. the reasons why this never stuck, not the dialect, obviously there's a dialect, obviously there's a language spoken at home. Forget yeah. the word dialect, forget that. There's a language yeah. spoken among people that is not formalized the way that we think of other languages. It's not written in any script. From time to time, you see it played with in Latin. Uh, we've seen sort of cheesy attempts at it. You know, the Zatar Wuzet menu sometimes comes out and you see it also in other ways. People actually try to use letters and, and sort of broaden it. Well, I don't think it's just in Latin. It's sort of you can play with it. But why, it, why didn't it become a national movement to adopt this as something more structured now when i say well when we talk about identity here not as a nation state because i don't like that either because i'm not a nationalist but it's just that by identity i mean this geographical area where uh, we happen to live with each other and uh, we understand each other and we speak a language that we all understand. So, so by identity, it's like, you know, Levantine identity, if you want, uh, near uh, or Eastern Mediterranean or whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. So it doesn't come from, from a nationalist uh, perspective. Right. But yes, like many people said on, on the podcast, many people who know more about language than myself, particularly Dr. Ahmed Jalad. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, I haven't uh, seen that one, but I, I know the, yeah, yeah. You know the guy. I know the name and I know, I mean, there's some others I think that probably we both know that they're just sort of, yeah. they're very focused in on it. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, he's a historian of uh, or early Arabic. Uh, mm -hmm, let's put mm -hmm. it this way. And what he, what, so what he says, and many other people say, that all languages are basically dialects, but with an army behind them. 
<laughs> uh, so it's uh, it's basically a political decision at the end of the day because right. just like uh, in Turkey, uh, Atatürk, and then they decide well, Turkish is the we have a new language and it's written this way and these are the this is the grammar and get used to it kind of yeah uh, so so it's it's just that uh, mainly and. And this is this is something you can never do in Lebanon because in the constitution it says that Lebanon is uh, how I don't even know how to or how it would be phrased in English, but it's uh, something something along the lines of it's Arab. It's an Arab country, or uh, it has a, an Arab an Arab face. Uh, yeah, an Arab face, kind of. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. even know what that means. But so, given that this is written in the institution, if if you any if you don't write in in, in Fusha, then you're basically changing the face yeah. of Lebanon, kind of. Right, right. Uh, this is on the one hand, and then of course you have all the issues arising from. Uh, uh, Said Al's endeavors, even though at early on they were just linguistic endeavors, and because of Said Al's political stances, everyone now uh, frowns upon right, this project. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there are a couple of factors that influence this, uh, uh, that play an important role in, in and keeping Fusha as the main language. But, but I mean, I understand it because the tricky part is we are a very small country. And if you really want to do business or to sell your books or to sell your articles or whatever that is, you either have to write in English, French, or Fusha. I like Nassim Talib's argument about it, bottom-up. Mm -hmm. like you cannot mm -hmm. really force, you cannot uh, force people to standardize the language. Sure, that's uh, true. It, it just, yeah, so it, uh, let it just happen organically, and then the more we, we write in, in, in our native tongue, the more we, we, we develop it further, the more we yeah. think about it, the more concepts we have, uh, the better, uh, the more comfortable we are at expressing ourselves in it. This doesn't mean that Arabic should we should just ditch Arabic or that we should stop writing in English. It's just it just means that now we have yet another uh, medium through which we can also reach people in Lebanon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's well said. Create our own uh, cultural production like movies, theater, and they are being done. Yeah, and, but you know, even that that sort of bottom-up approach, I mean, I think it, it does happen in ways we don't really appreciate. I mean, every WhatsApp message that I send to somebody is belibnene. Yep. And it's, it's not, I mean, there's mistakes made. There's numbers that are filling in for, you know, for letters. There's rules that are not very rigid, and sometimes you have to double-check what they mean. I mean, but it, it's there. It, it's sort yeah. of, it exists. And you know, it's funny, at some some point you can look back on your chats, that's a language that nobody has ever <laughs> seen before. It's like, a, that's the Lebanese language. Of course. Yeah, so I, I, that's a good way of looking at it, that it, it can't force, you can't force it otherwise. Yeah. This is the natural way of expression. Exactly.
and it's okay to incorporate uh, concepts and uh, loan words from other languages. Mm-hmm. And so far as uh, we are making ourselves under understood, and that's it. Yeah. So, so if you want, what what I call for is just, or what I would like to see is, of course, not at an official level because you still need uh, to to write you know, for judiciary purposes and other maybe business purposes, you need uh, a standardized language mm, for mm. efficiency purposes. Well, that would be so but funny then, to see like a court order. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe eventually we never yeah. know. But then listening to the news and in, in I'm like, I don't understand shit. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I cannot relate to it. They, they, they use words I never understand. And uh, how can you really like if and, and supposedly I went to school where I studied Fusha for 15 years, you know, yeah. Yeah. and I still don't understand the news. <laughs> and it's you know, not because I'm not trying to make an effort or I'm trying to make an effort. It's just sure. it's, it's difficult for me. But then when people speak in Lebanese on TV shows, let's say people like Dan Ezzi, he goes up mm, people. Mm. Uh, the yeah, the interviewers are or would ask him uh, in uh, in Fusha, and then yeah. he responds in Lebanese, and I understand what he has, what he's saying, not the question. <laughs> Same thing for me, although yeah, yeah, half of those years were in America, so Anna, مثل حمار, I'm studying Fusha Kawaid. I had a uh, what's that dictionary everyone uses. Hans Ver, Hans Ver. This is a. It's usually it's meant for foreign students usually to study Arabic. It it breaks down all the verbs in their seven structures. It's a very dense book, but it actually makes it. It's a way to maybe, with time and effort, you should be able to become proficient in classical Arabic. Sana, you know, suburbs of America with a backyard and a forest and, you know, there's deer showing up and you drive to school and your bus or whatever, taking your backpack. And there's this like, and, and America, they don't line up naturally as a kid, as a kid going to school. And there's no interaction with anyone that I'm, I'm never going to use this. Right. Yep. But they, parents wanted me to, to learn it and it, it just didn't work. It didn't work. Well, it didn't work, actually. The uh, years and years of practice. I mean, get, that's understandable. Yeah, you reach an intermediate level, and then over time, if you don't use it, it just sort of it dies away. But I never took a course in Lebanon. About 20 years of my life, I remember most of the conversations that family friends would have in and it stuck. And I never took one course in it. Now I'm not proficient with Lebanese, and I can't. I actually, before we recorded, I even I mentioned this to you that it would be a horror show if we tried the whole thing with Lebanese, right? <laughs> but I can get by. I can get by, and I and I like what you said about watching TV. Always the case with me. Any time the conversation shifts from formal to to local, if you will, um, it's it's like the whole conversation makes sense. So there is something missing from the equation there. And I actually, I, I agree with what you were saying in terms of this may be a fundamental problem for the country without getting political. Forget the politics associated with of it. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that, that it, is a, it is a strange dichotomy 
to have a spoken language that's never structured, not given its fair chance, yet yet the population depends on it, and uh, it sticks. It, it is it is a it is a language, and yeah, all of the above add to the complications of Lebanon. This kind of conversation, which it doesn't happen in real life. If we met in person and we sat down at a cafe, we'll have a variation of this, but it wouldn't be as, uh, I don't think it would be, it would be meaningful, but in a different way. It's almost like we'd get to know each other maybe in a, in a more natural way, but I don't think we'd be able to explore everything we're talking about right now. There's almost like, um, there's an intimacy to this type of conversation that allows a lot of topics to get discussed and you can take as much time as you want you can actually go very deep we could go deeper into language but i'm curious in your episodes and you're i think you're in the th in the 30s now if i'm not mistaken yeah. I'm, I'm 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 approaching 200 so i yes you know <laughs> you've been in the business uh way more for 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 longer that's true that's true but but I think both of us have that kind of we've done this enough times to know what the what the benefits are if if there are benefits is there anything that you've gained from these conversations that you wouldn't have gained otherwise and this by the way this could include something basic that you have a platform where you can reach out to Nassim Talib or to Dan Azzi or to pretty much anyone you'd like and I sometimes I think we see each other on Twitter reaching out to people some some of them i've reached out to myself and it's that kind of are, are you finding yourself as a more fulfilled person after you have these conversations or do you sense that you're learning more and more as time goes because i'm curious i'm curious what resonates with you we wouldn't have this discussion in real life yeah because i'm an introvert huh you know, so I'm the most introvert person you could ever meet because I don't, I don't really like to talk to, I'm, I'm, I'm a mixture of introvert, misanthrope, uh, self-hater, <laughs> all you want. It's, it's like they, they all mixed up and, uh, yeah, in, in me. So this is one of the things that this has helped me in is uh, to talk. The people, mm. Mm. because like I'm a buzzkill at parties. Let's put it this way. But you're the thing a, is, sorry, what I'm, did you say? Uh, you're a, a buzzkill buzz at parties. You're a buzzkill. Like I, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I always, I always depend, uh, depended on on my wife to to do the you know the chit chats in order for me to kind of yeah because I I don't really know what to say. But the thing is, I've noticed that. <laughs> Part of the reason why this was the case was because um, it's weird, but it's um, I never really in a way or another, and I always thought that I would never have uh, interesting discussions mm. with people here. Mm. So I never actually tried. So you've got an introvert who's given, who had given up on Lebanon, thought that I, I could never have these interesting discussions with anyone. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm discovering an entire new world. So 
So this is how the podcast and in one aspect have helped me a lot. Uh, it's it's not really because I'm an introvert or not. It's just because I'm having discussions with people from uh, diverse backgrounds who are doing different things. Yeah. And I'm learning a lot and I'm enjoying the discussions and it's just fun. I meet them in real person and then it feels as though we've known each other for uh, for a long time and things just, yeah, this, this has been uh, the, my realization for the past two years that uh, through Twitter and through now the podcast, I've been able to develop and build relations uh, that I wouldn't have been able to prior to that, but it was primarily because of my mon- mindset. That's really interesting. You know, I, I'm glad you said this. I would never, I would never turn you down at a party. If I saw you at a party, you'd be the, I would go straight to you. I would actually skip the party and want to talk to you. So that's actually quite interesting. I never imagined you as an introvert. So that I'm glad you're saying that, that, yeah, it shows that there is something here. This way of communication does yeah. offer something. There are, uh, it, it allows your mind to explore things that you wouldn't be able to as well. That's by default. I mean, you're, we're doing things that don't have borders. You could literally call anyone you want on this yep. planet. I think in the yeah. old days, our, much our parents, but I think the grandparents, when they would talk about how much they loved radio and just sitting by the radio and listening Ooh. for a long time, that's something that we lost. Interesting, yeah. And I think we're yeah. maybe this is a way of compensation. It's like you can, this is all, there's something about this. I think that if you're just listening and you're enjoying, it is kind of like sitting next to the radio. True. Of course, it's a radio that you determine when to turn it on and off. It's not, uh, if you miss it, it's okay. It'll be there for the rest of your life. It's yeah. probably on your phone. <laughs> you don't have to wait for the replay or anything of the sort right. either. I don't know how you, why you started or how you got to start your podcast, uh, but I kind of, and if, um, it, it seems that all your guests are focused or hover around Lebanon, more or less, and yeah. that's pretty much... I would assume it's in the name. I mean, Banyan is not really just limited to Lebanon, but I'm, I kind of think about AUB every time I, yeah. I, I, hear, the, I hear Banyan. I, th- I hope that doesn't uh, turn you off. When you... <laughs> I love the AUB campus, man. Good. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> My problem, I don't even have a problem with AUB, by the way. My problem is with LU. Uh, but no, I, yeah. I, I like the trash talk. It's just it's a it's a it's a it's a Twitter thing. No, I, 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 I like. I only interrupted you because I know people that dismiss AUB and they think of Ross Beirut as just a a bubble and that it's sort of you know people should look beyond. But no. okay, so no, I'm glad you're you're no, a fan. No, you're a fan my, of my, yeah. And, and this is this is another thing as well because I. Uh, so. During my stay at the archives, I, I also got to watch uh, oral histories with people who grew up in Ras Beirut. One of mm-hmm. them was Kamal Badr, Dr. Kamal Badr, mm-hmm. and and he spoke about the Vanian tree as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it rang a bell. This is why. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's interesting to see things from their perspective as well and how he grew up and yeah. The more I got to know people from, from this Ras Beirut bubble, yeah. uh, if you want, it became even more interesting. Okay. Because yeah. they, yeah, you, you get to know more about uh, how things were, and I've spoken to people from different uh, uh, ages, and it's, it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I can, we can talk about that eventually. Well, but, but uh, yeah. yeah, but I think in there you asked, and I, I interrupted you, but you were asking um, uh, the the focus on Lebanon as opposed to oh yeah uh, yeah. No, I mean, what, uh, what, uh, why, why did you, or how did you uh, come to start your podcast? And uh... it's actually a very easy answer, and uh, I uh, I give a walking tour in Beirut. It's called Walk Beirut. Oh. And you may maybe you've heard of it, or maybe uh, heard it, yeah. Yes. And in the old days, I mean, a while ago, uh, I used to start at the banyan tree between mm. Bliss and Medical Gate, just yep. that that tree at the corner. Yep. Right. So, I mean, it's a very obvious intersection, and there's that giant banyan tree that's technically outside of AUB's campus. It's, I think, the only one that's not on campus exactly. Yeah. I used to start there. Uh, And I started there because I was trying to tell a very long story of Beirut's history. And I thought the best starting point, the best meeting point, would be under a giant tree offering some shade, a tree of knowledge. And that is literally the tree of knowledge. The banyan tree is meant to be the tree of knowledge branches that grow horizontally roots that grow horizontally it's a very it's a very horizontal tree and i i literally i loved the shade i loved looking up at times while talking to big groups i loved hearing the birds chirping and i loved the story of aub and why that banyan tree is even there and why there are obscure trees of knowledge in beirut to begin with so I started with Daniel Bliss's story and the planting of these trees and the foundation of modern Lebanon, really, uh, the Syrian Protestant college. And I used to always turn to, I used to hear his voice sometimes, Kamel Salibi, the historian who wrote The House of Many Mansions. And, you know, AUB is uh, probably the most important professor. I rented a room in one of his old buildings on Sedet. His nephew became a friend and I got to meet Kamal Salibi. And I thought this man is so interesting. He's, he can be offensive, he can be harsh, and he can be hilarious. And I think he was, he was in his 70s then. So he, was, he had already left AUB. But I got the chance to listen to him talking about AUB, talking about Beirut. And I loved it. I loved listening to this man share his opinions on everything Ras Beirut. Uh, I got to know Samir Khalaf as well, who, you know, not, up until not, not that long ago, was still part of AUB. Well, Samir Khalaf is Ras Beirut. I mean, he's he's an encyclopedia on Ras Beirut. And uh, I thought, okay, let me start the story here, under this beautiful banyan tree, tree of knowledge. Let me end the story underneath a different tree. It's not the banyan tree. 
in downtown next to Nahar, there's the Samir Asir Garden. Oh, yeah. And his statue is sitting underneath these two giant, I think they're ficus trees. Or I don't know the exact name, but they look like a banyan tree. They're huge. I thought, you know what? That's the story. 1860s until 2005. Daniel Bliss to Samir Asir. That's 150 years of storytelling. So that's how I started the tour. And when I had to stop giving the tour, uh, you know, I, I just remembered thinking about that tree always. And by the time I came back to Beirut during the tour again, I changed the location of where to start. And, you know, that intersection is so off-putting because of the noise and people parking next to the tree. Security became very relaxed. You could just park. <laughs> it became dangerous to gather people there. But I always thought about that tree. And then, you know, when I started doing the podcast, I'm like, you know, let me go back to where I started, symbolically. Let me go back to the stories that I used to share at the beginning. So that's the perfect place. So I called it the Beirut Banyan after that tree. And I still think, and people disagree at times, but that's fine. I think Ras Beirut is an experiment that we should all be proud of because it's the only place I know in the Middle East today where you can have a feel of what it's like to be an Eastern Mediterranean cosmopolitan person, where your religion doesn't come first, where your background matters less than your contribution, and you can wander the streets of Hamra and Ras Beirut and really forget that you're in the middle of a huge mess, that it's sort of a, it's a, it's a little bubble and it's contained and it shrinks, and it shrinks, and it shrinks. But there's expression there that I love, and there's individuality that I really love. And I don't feel that in other parts of Lebanon, or for that matter, the Middle East. So I, I love I love what Ras Beirut at least pretends to be, and I love uh, those trees. What is, basically, storytelling for you? I don't have a very rigid definition, so I, I, yeah. don't, uh, I don't see it as one thing. I think uh, a good story matters, and I think uh, great stories are permanent. And I love capturing an, audience, an audience's attention, and even if it's for a few minutes, making them at least live through something that may not be there. And for me, if the subject is meaningful, then it's this is this is ecstasy. I, I really that may not be there. Yeah. I'll I'll give you an example. Yeah. And I, I apologize if it's like a, if it's a redundant example. But for me it's a, it's a it's a perfect way of exploring the field of storytelling. There's a heart there's a neighborhood in the middle of the city, in the heart of downtown, that is gone. It's been bulldozed completely. It's not there. It's Wadi Abu Jmir. Yep. Now, we all know Wadi Abu Jmir. We know the name. We know, we know roughly, roughly where it is. But you ask somebody, take me to Wadi Abu Jmir, they, they're not going to... They don't know, they'll throw you at Starco, maybe. If you're if you're lucky, you'll get get dropped off at Starco. 
or they may drop you off be ashrafi they wouldn't know necessarily where it is or like had klimonso and they'll put you somewhere but we know the name i think most people at least in our generation and i know we're we're maybe 10 years apart but i'm going to say we're in the same generation the post war kids or though no i would say differently you're you're you are a civil war child so the 1980s <laughs> let's say I that am. way yes that generation you and me maybe we know that yeah it had a jewish angle to it the younger kids i don't think they know they don't even know unaware what that neighborhood is even what it means or what it used to be it's just uh solidaire the whole thing is solidaire i took thousands of people and i pushed and i pushed and i pushed to get security clearance permission from all types of derek or solidaire people and politician security guards and i pushed and i pushed and i pushed and i pushed and i eventually found a way to get sometimes 60 people at a time to enter wadi abujmir not one i mean rare rare lebanese on the tour would know where they were going because this is a walled off neighborhood and you can't you can't just walk in there's it's gated it's heavily armed as well yep and in this neighborhood just below sarai i mean it's it's right there it's downtown had the sarai there's a huge synagogue yep yelli mano yelli aish bil lebanon ma biaraf inu fi there's a kanis bi wadi abu jamil bil wasat beirut but an ajnabi came and startled it's like what the hell is this doing here a massive synagogue in the heart of beirut yelli aish beirut let's say many yam al harib has probably never seen it maybe maybe dghri ba'd al harib yimkin is a you know walking around green line beirut they may have walked across it maybe but for the last two decades at least unlikely that you've seen the synagogue now i'm going to ask you have you ever seen the synagogue nope so you'd be Only the perfect pictures you'd be the perfect person on the tour so i i wrote i i memorized let's say a story about wadi abujmil it's about 15 minutes long and it's three different spots in the neighborhood and for me that's storytelling you're showing a group a downtown beirut you're letting them live through what downtown used to be like you're letting them hear voices that disappeared and these are very important voices these are lebanese jews that once called beirut home and they thought of themselves only as lebanese only as beiruti and they thought of that far more important than their faith and than their god and whatever and letting them hear their voices letting them almost imagine that they were still there and then taking them to a synagogue that was once operating celebrated and showing them the gates of a synagogue right in the middle of beirut for 15 minutes you're back in the 1940s 1950s and you're showing people what the city lost and you're showing them a lot of pain in the process 
but you're giving them at least a window into that chapter. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. None of it's chronological, but they leave, I think, feeling that they, that they experienced something. And I can't do this online and I can't, I can't really do it in print. I've tried in different ways of maybe flirting with different ways of storytelling. But for Beirut, I think you have to walk and take people right to where it happened and let them feel it. And it has to be visible. It has to be in person. Yeah. And, and sometimes in the middle of the story, somebody in the tour would start crying. And this would be a Lebanese Jew who would return on vacation. And they wouldn't tell us. I mean, they didn't really feel the need to mention it. But there were several times where it's older, older group, older guests would start crying. And they would say, it's the first time they've seen this place in 70, 60, 70. One person left in the 1950s and returned. So he was a boy. He was a child when he left. So this is, it's very emotional. And it's, uh, for me, that's, a, that's like giving a history lesson about a neighborhood but done in a way that's it, it really has an impact and that's that's yeah. kind of what i think about when i think of storytelling interesting it's, yeah it's a very broad definition i am still around don't worry because i have a ups but uh hey there he is <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this is not the first time, by the way, this happens. Oh, this is, uh, no, this is the real, hello, the episode. Yeah, yeah. Is your, so, is your, is your Wi-Fi going to go, do you think, or is it, uh, is it staying? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, if it's not for the Wi-Fi, because I do have a small UPS, it's for okay. the, for the right. PC, but yeah. Well, that, yeah, we that. Can, that might be the sign. That might be the you know the the hand sort of. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you, Mahmoud. Did you get to meet Dan Dennett when he was at AUB? Uh, no, I've attended his talk. Okay. Uh, but I've never actually met him. Why? I mean, as somebody who's into philosophy, and I'm going to call you a philosopher here. Do, do you I think of like in it philosophically like speaking i see i see not not the person i mean i don't mind the person i just philosophically speaking i don't uh, i don't think we will get along because i don't really like analytic philosophy hmm yeah so i'm not into philosophy of mind and consciousness and stuff like that so i'm I, I I wouldn't be I I cannot relate like I've I attended his talk I've read some of the things he wrote and I've it, it it's not my thing but it's uh, in in this case I I mean I'm not the, the I, I mean who am I to judge or to you know my my personal opinion is that I don't it this is not uh, it's it's not my uh, kind of piece of cake so I don't uh, and for someone who does analytic philosophy, I'm a fraud, basically. <laughs> yeah, so it goes both ways. Right, so this right. Is the thing. And this is why, in part, I, I actually quit my, my academic job, because I want oh. to teach philosophy. I mean, I do know my, my stuff, right? I've, and mm. I, I, 
uh, and I've taught and I can teach that, but I want to do something else with it. So I don't want uh, to adhere to your typical kind of curriculum and to teach things in this way or that way and to discuss the same topics as other people are discussing because for me personally they don't they don't mean anything like i can read about them but it doesn't for me philosophy if it doesn't if it doesn't mean anything to you if it, if it, you cannot relate it to your concrete experience then i i don't see the point to it and you were not able to do that in in the university setting you were not able no. to get it i see <sighs> Oh, at least because uh, you can, but then it wouldn't be sustainable because I was a part-time. Right. So if you want to get in as a full-time position, you'll have to eventually do uh, what the system asks you to. So you yeah. have to, you know, publish papers and to publish papers, you'll have to write in a certain way and to write in a certain way, you'll have to discuss these topics to get it published, you know, the entire, yeah. You know, I'm going to just mention one of my favorite professors at AUB was Bashar Haidar, who's a philosophy... He's oh. great, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was worried. Yeah. I was worried no, you were going to... <laughs> no. he's, he's, one of the, he's one of the very few people I actually enjoy talking to as well in parties. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, the, the nicest conversations I had with him were not at AUB. They would be in Hamra and cafes and just... Yep. I saw him during the protest sitting in Martyr's Square and we had a conversation. I... But to me, that is it. The disadvantage would apply to him as well, that he can't do what you're what you're saying, or is it really just a matter of it takes so long to get there in some in, in an institution that it's that the time is not worth all the energy. Uh, yeah, and and because so, I mean, I can't talk uh for him but i think you have to have this kind of professionalism on the side in order to be able to which which i cannot maintain right simply because right. i yeah but then so the other day i actually funny you bring up bashar now because yesterday i i saw one of his, one of the talks uh, uh one of his talks basically on youtube i don't know how i got there i was i was looking for something and then he popped up and then I read an article of his on the pandemic. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So what I like about him is that one of his comments was that, uh, and he said it in, in Lebanese kind of, Zhid falsafi. you know? So, so hey, I think, again, I cannot talk for him, but, uh, but he, I, I like his attitude to, to philosophy as well. Hmm. And no, it's this is what I and, and this is good, you know. The the I publish etc. But then his his attitude to it is chill kind of. And when you want to have yeah. Yeah. this guy, he's not really, you know, taking. Okay, let me put it uh, differently because maybe he is one of. I don't know. Like, but uh, for me, I come to. I've i I've become disillusioned with people who deal with academic philosophy as though it's the savior from all worldly problems kind of and they take it all too seriously that they cannot have they cannot just you know chill and you see that in the academic setting it's like everyone is just uh, it's as though they have a they're on a mission and they're they're saving humanity and and this is the argument and i found the argument and i 
was able to build up this argument. And they cannot, like, and this, this need not be only be like, and, or it's, it's not anyone in particular, it's just the atmosphere of, of all the conferences I've been to, yeah. the, the different yeah. departments I've dealt with, and it's just, I did not really like that attitude, because for me, one has to be, I mean, it's just, uh, we need to chill, and we need to laugh at ourselves a bit as, as people who do philosophy. I'm curious, when you said earlier, you're not particularly inclined to have academics on, unless it's sort of agreed in advance that it's a more fluid conversation. Is that something about why you're doing your own individual courses that you want? And I mean, is it more like applied philosophy in that sense, as opposed to just, okay, so, so you see a benefit in using philosophy in real life. Was that something you just, by default, you can't do that in a university setting? That it's just too, it's too institutionalized that you won't be able to test, in a way, the limits of what you're doing? Because I, I find it very attractive when it's, I, you're a philosopher, I'm assuming out of passion for philosophy, that nobody, nobody pushed you to become a philosopher. Yeah. And that you're able to do it on your terms. And it's very rare that somebody can have a job that they create and 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 love it at the same time and do it and do it well. These are very rare. These are I think what people look for in life. I, I looked for it and I found it. When you can set the terms for your own career and it's something you love doing, you don't work for anyone. I mean, in a in a way, you're your own boss. So I, I find that very attractive as and this world of whatever you want yeah. to call it. So is that part of the story here that you that you you could have stayed in university and you could have gotten tenure at some point and you'd be publishing pieces, but you would end up irrelevant in that sense? That it's not miserable. It's not miserable. I, I miserable. To, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't happy because it, it it's it's uh, it's a it's a loop uh, that yeah. you get to because uh, I wasn't happy and you're constantly thinking of the next paper you want to write in order to get it published and it's 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 just exhausting because universities have come to the point where they bureaucrats they 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 forgot that philosophy is not about publishing papers I mean we're not doing physics here <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah it's true yeah yeah it's, there's no so like I, yeah <laughs> I, I, now you can tell me you can i can teach let's say and i've heard this from many people that you can you can really if you really love teaching philosophy you can do that at a at a college or something or a liberal arts college and so this is where your question comes in and i think at the end of the day um just some of the reflections, because I, I don't think if I can, if this is sustainable, I mean, I'm, I'm just tinkering with it for now and I'm enjoying it a lot. So on the one hand, it is institutionalized. Mm. And uh, one of the downside to all this is that you have students who only care about the grades. Of course, right. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. cannot, uh, you can, so of course I can, I can do my part, I can get them interested in it, etc. But at the end of the day, you have to give, to, to give them exams and papers to write and you'll have to, to grade yeah. them based on that. Right. So somewhere in their unconscious, even if they claim they love philosophy, at the end of the day, they just want an A. Yeah. 
is that because they're undergraduate students that you don't see that they're that they're particularly passionate about philosophy? They're taking it as just an it elective. Could hmm. It could be. It could be. You know, some of them are, but at the end of the day, even if they are passionate about it, yeah, if they don't get an A, they're gonna be upset. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have you have the, you have. Uh, eventually you have this great element and it creates some sort of i always constantly try to tell the students and i told the students look this is it's, if you're in it for the grade get the hell out of the course I, i'm not interested uh you can take uh whatever course and get an easy a there etc and this is why yeah. uh i was accused of scaring the students at, uh, at leu because i told them that if you're in it for the grade just uh, this course is not for you It's not like you had a long career in the university. I mean, it's Seven short. Yeah. Uh, sorry, how long? How long? Seven years. Seven years. So it's not like, I mean, they're academics and you know them. No, no. They yeah. they spend decades and decades and decades. So, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you catch wind early on that this is not for you? Or is it something no. that, so from the beginning you felt that this was wrong? Uh, halfway through. Halfway through, uh, mm -hmm. because you, I realized, well, I was in it because I love teaching. I see. Yeah. But then I quickly realized, well, not quickly, halfway through, I realized that you can be, you can, you can teach, but uh, research will uh, wear you out and you'll become just uh, tired. And it's, and when I started trying to publish, I got into to this uh, uh, vicious circle, and I it's it was for me it was it was a very unpleasant experience, yeah. uh, borderline depressing as well, because you become all too stressed, and you can you can e neither focus on on uh, on your courses nor on your research. And this is why this is why I applied the the job at the archives. I took a break from teaching for oh, a year I see. to get my shit together. I was too depressed, man. Uh, and I, I, that's amazing. Yeah. You went to the archives to relieve yourself from. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> uh, as weird as it was, yeah, it was. It was very interesting yeah. and eye-opening because I got uh, so because so. I it it wasn't intended, but I got uh, the chance to see what an actual or what a life of continuous research or research output would be like, and I did not really like it. So this is why I quit and went back to teaching. Mm. But ever since I quit from the archives, I adopted a different attitude to teaching, and uh, the entire thing. So I did. I, like from, from 2018 until today, I haven't even written a philosophy paper. Oh, because you don't, because there's no because need Because I'm to not interested. Yeah. I've but, written articles yeah. and I published them, etc. But then I'm not interested in writing an academic philosophy. And can I ask you something? Because you, you remind me a bit of me in a different way. I started a PhD five years ago. Yeah. I got through a year of it actually and then i decided to just downgrade to a masters so i i took a i basically let go of the dissertation and i yeah. sort of 
you know, you repackage Finish it to get the it. coursework. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you and some a there's a thesis, but it's not a dissertation, right? And I'm I was very turned off by the things I think that uh, uh, maybe maybe it's just me. I did not like the loneliness of of the PhD. I did not enjoy the once a month meeting with the supervisor and that's your social life. Uh, I actually did not find any benefit in anything I was writing as a, as a PhD student, even if it would be published, even yeah. if there was a journal that was curious about it. And I could probably, I probably could have packaged some of it, but that I knew, I knew that at the end of the day, this would maybe live in a library, maybe. And maybe one day a student or two would find it and cite it. And that's like... If you're lucky enough. If you're lucky. And on occasion, I find my name cited in, in other journals. And it's usually it has something to do with academia, something. But, but that's not the goal. And it didn't feel good. And I, yeah. I exited early. I, I couldn't see myself doing this for five, six years and then, and then living this way. But at the same time, I know that there has to be some value to academic papers. Otherwise, this would not be a huge part of university life where there's so much demand, so much pressure to produce these papers. And that's how you get tenure at the end of the day. You prove that you can do your research and your research is worth something. It's beyond the teaching. And that's the part I love the most as well. I, for, for me, the thought of lecturing a course is fantastic. The research and the grind wasn't. But I know that it serves a function. So I'm curious, Inta, since then, you've been away from it. You haven't done any yeah. academic. Do you feel like your contribution is still as meaningful as it is? I mean, in other words, is there any disadvantage to you having not done it for two years where you see that there's something you won't you cannot rely on or something that doesn't uh it maybe puts you at a disadvantage to other philosophers or is it is it machas really machas it doesn't matter in my case it it doesn't really matter hmm. because and of course this is my personal experience and i wrote about it in, in one of the articles in for ario magazine uh, why I got into philosophy and why I was disillusioned by it. Um, I I do not really enjoy talking to people who do philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I like I enjoy talking to people who, for me, the real philosophers. Honestly speaking, if we want to think about philosophers, like uh, people, anyone who's reflecting on their existence like now they now and in, in, in the course or now the conversation between you and me and any anything is is more valuable because first off I learn something and I connect with other people and I learn something that uh, from from a really different perspective something that has nothing to do with arguments it's like I'm, I, I discover yeah. entire worlds like from the discussion in, in my classes now I have people who work in finance, people who work in uh, in HR, people who do other things, and 
partners and architects and uh, people who do editing as well and you have these experiences and and there's there's a different dimension to it than just uh, your your typical uh, academic class now other people are interested in it be my guest mm. if they're mm. I'm, I'm not saying this is this is bad or this is good it's just me personally yeah I I learned so much more from Twitter and podcasts and conversations with people than I did in my entire un uh, not undergrad graduate and academic career really really you mean that and Twitter yes. and podcasts really yes oh wow but but learn like like it's like I'm like uh, or uh, it's uh, I was exposed if you want to, to, mm. to use a mm. different term to, to more things that I that made me aware of other things in life you know this doesn't mean that my experience in academia wasn't helpful so it gave you what it gave you tools to learn it gave me tools it made me what i am now because it, it was kind of i now know what i don't want <laughs> and i i grew in you know like you're experiencing class and in, in, in the class and talking to students etc it shapes you mm -hmm. one way or the other so without that experience i wouldn't have been able to to come to a point whereby i said you know what the hell with it i need to look for something else Right. So I'm not I'm not discrediting that part. I'm just saying mm. that uh, I have understood that they, that that there are other platforms whereby you can learn more things and you can interact with people who are genuinely interested and it's yeah more in a more accessible manner. But I'm guessing you're looking at it as a as a teacher. You're trying to gauge the student and you're finding the way that offers the most the purest form of of teaching because it's for me the policy the forget uh the, the academic paper is not something you share by default it's not something that's mm -hmm. shared with your students mm -hmm. it's something mm -hmm. that's shared with your faculty and maybe a few peers that kind of have to review it and a journal that says yes or no at the end and it could be denied and it's like a it's a it's and there's a there's like a, a system that gets you promoted that way. The students are never part of it, but yeah. but I'm 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 sensing from what you're saying is that your most the the most rewarding part of philosophy is is the student. It's the relationship to the student. And not quite like mm. not in so far as it's a relation of between a teacher and a student. No, it's it's because academic citation rings create this uh, this circle whereby you really keep on you create at least in philosophy in physics and sciences it's it might be different but then you get sucked up into this circle of everyone citing each other and in order to, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 right whereas in the market and this is why i i i think of this as taking philosophy back to the marketplace mm -hmm. you get honest direct feedback and you learn as well yeah. so it's it's this relationship between myself and and other people the participants in a sense that you can get direct feedback and you learn from them not only it's it's not only a one-way kind of right street. it's it's there's there's interaction there and 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 you i am learning a lot 
for example, about matters. Yeah. Related. Uh, so so yeah. the the market is your peer review, as opposed exactly. to the faculty. Okay. Yes. That's really interesting. And it's more honest. Hmm. And and it's uh, it's it's not only a peer review. It's just uh, it's like it's a give and take kind of thing. So you I, have people interested as well because in class, like in the academic setting, many students have to take the course. Here, people want to take the course. When I, when I was in Spain, in Salamanca, it's a city uh, um, 200, 250 kilometers from, from the capital, Madrid. And they had no Starbucks there, for example. Mm, yeah. There was one McDonald's uh, branch and one Burger King. But for some reason, I always, bit by bit, I started uh, frequenting the local places. So I'm not someone who, and then I, I, I applied to Lebanon here and I, and, and you see these, you see this one argument that is anti-imperialistic, for example, and they see in Starbucks as the, they see Starbucks as the enemy because yeah. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at just this is when you pointed out the local part. I don't see Starbucks as a problem. I just see that if we only are going to be relying on, on uh, franchises, American or otherwise, I don't yeah. care. Mm -hmm. This is the problem because what you're doing is you're depriving the country or the city from its uh, local kind sure. of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Blueprint. So it's in and and there you see. So I I used to have. So instead of going, let's say to, to McDonald's, I, I I frequented this other local place called El Yunque, and they had very delicious uh, bocadillo sandwiches, burgers, etc. And and it's different. You're now you're it's... making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but so, but this is yeah. This is this is it. So it it has nothing to do. It, there is no. It's it's not about the imperialist. We're it. We're way past that now. It's the, the we're living in a different uh, kind of era, etc. And I I would worry more about the soft power of, of of grants coming to people at AUB, for example, than than people <laughs> buying a coffee from Starbucks. But, <laughs> <laughs> and importing all these values, I I don't have I don't mind that either. But no, and no, don't tell me anti-imperialistic, etc. And fighting all these powers, blah blah blah. No, it's about preserving. If if you if you make the other argument, you know, we want to preserve our local culture and and uh, cultivate and promote production because we lack that. We we live off imports in Lebanon. Yeah. So if we yeah. if we if you want to, to 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 create some sort of productive economy, I'm all for it local so so i don't right. mind that it's okay for a society to be able to do both, both you know exactly you can be yeah, international of course yeah. you can you can welcome the world and its ideas you can also celebrate your own and let them live side by side that's a healthy society of course and it, it, without really only relying on on imports in the case of lebanon yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just the balance of production you know yeah. And and I mean it's the no, but it's also that I mean it's not like Lebanese 
are trying to get rid of Starbucks. No, no. Some, yeah. uh, well, some, some I mean, were sorry. happy the other day. Some were happy that, that that's true. Starbucks that's true. might close down. Yeah. You're right. But that's the joy you get when you're suffering and you're watching your whole world collapse with you. It's a very, it's like a, it's a very evil form of, of uh, like, or or it's politically charged, which is, yeah, it's, that's, it's ideological. yeah, uh, a hardcore leftist kind. Of okay, party. that's true. Yeah, yeah. Th that 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 exists, but but a, a real healthy society, which I don't, maybe we're not anymore, would be able to handle the hardcore leftist cafe, if you will. <laughs> which the, uh, also exists yeah. I mean Abu, Abu, like uh, masalan, uh, Abu Ili underneath the uh, yeah, uh, yeah. What's the, I've never been but, yeah. Caracas building Ekhir, uh, yeah, Hamra. I've, I've never been but I know what hey, you're talking about yeah. I mean you can't get more leftist than that place and you know what further up the street Broshe, there's a Starbucks and that's like you should be able to allow for a, a, a multitude of, of things. You know, maybe we can wrap up with, a, with, a, with me asking you a final question. Sure. And, and, then, and then if you have a final one, you ask me. I'm not going to. I'm curious about your own evolution yeah. beyond philosophy. Mm. What, what makes you sort of more inclined to, to local to individual freedom and local maybe local politics and and just a, a an appreciation for the Lebanese language things that are very uh, bottom up what what yeah. took you that direction beyond the names that we've discussed I mean I know Nassim Talib talks about yeah. this regularly and I know that others like him have expressed this in different ways but in your case somebody who grew up in Lebanon who's not naturally, let's say, naturally exposed to that terrain. What yeah. took you this direction? And, and, I, and what made you into somebody who does this for a living? <laughs> uh, uh, does what for a living? Well, I mean, uh, share, sh shares the passion for the local. I mean, okay. most of the episodes I've heard is a reminder, I think, of that, that local affairs matter more than, yeah. than anything. So Nassim, Nassim Taleb resonated with me. Yeah, mm. uh, I, I had already uh, come to a point whereby I was thinking about all these, and then I had read Nassim Taleb's Black Swan before, but then okay. yeah. Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game were, were kind of uh, uh, interesting for me because they came at a point when I was having this transformation or rethinking all these uh, my encounter with the archive was the was what got me to think about right. all these mm -hmm. I, I saw a lot of pan nationalist movements and I got exposed to all these movements in AUB and elsewhere and in the mm -hmm. region like the student uprisings and the pan all sorts of pans we've we've had all sorts of pans from all brands Pan-Islamist, Pan-Arabist, Pan-Pan-Pan-Pan. Yeah. Pan-Syrian. Pan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and different causes and everyone is fighting for inclusion at a grand scale of, uh, uh, on a grand scale of things. 
like for example i i also because i was working on on this uh, on one project where i read i had to read the biography of shakib erslan and then i got to read about uh, his his uh, jean blatt's grandfather and the oh, mother's course, side of course yes yes uh, right. yeah yeah but say, so so he was uh, pro turkey and then became uh, pan-Islamist, pan-Arabist, pan pan-Islamist, and then you, the Arab nationalists. So all <laughs> these kind of, and I'm like, hey, you know. <laughs> and this also includes the right-wing nationalists. I mean, people think, no, you're, you're, a, you're a, a Lebanese. No, I'm not a Lebanese nationalist. I just, I don't care about all these. Mm -hmm you know yeah. umbrella kind of i i i just want i'm i'm just a poor soul living living in beirut and i just i just want to be kind of just leave me be you know but but the archives showed you that what you were learning was not as romantic as you thought is that what it did because i'm what is no, it about what is I, it about archives I, that made you change your mind before or, that i was not aware of anything oh i see so the archives opened your opened yes, your mind to this i, I, I had, see I, I i couldn't care less before that i, right. I couldn't yeah yeah like i yeah, yeah i did you do you do study history at school etc but so no i've never really was that involved i couldn't care mm. less about the history of lebanon uh nothing like nothing <laughs> absolutely nothing i actually think that's it just shows that uh, even if the conclusions are not let's let's say let's say let's say you're wrong let's just go with it let's say you're wrong it just doesn't matter. The fact is you formulated your thoughts by accessing history and that you took the time and effort, in your case, quite some time, to learn the history. And I think if anything is lacking, in terms of education and, and all that, that's the big one, history. That's something there's very little appreciation for. Everyone shouts over themselves about, quote, politics i don't think that's even the right word but there's very little true maybe self-reflection and in your case really understanding what certain terms mean and what they represented and individuals yeah. and, and and their persuasions and and you go to the macro and you go to the micro too and that takes time and i think if, if the conclusion is the local solution matters more than anything. That's that's after having examined a lot and sort of reaching somewhere. And I think that's that's it's like a it's a very it's almost like a healing process, if you will, that you can yep. you can sort of clean up the mess that you've been bombarded with just by the fact of living in Lebanon and having slogans shouted and having dreams die and having. Uh, bad ideas sometimes flourish at the expense of good ones i i have a i have a an example but it's a controversial one let me let me get it yeah sure and i say controversial because he's a pariah he's uh not somebody i think anyone who has studied the middle east maybe would find him to be a I like his writing and I love his stories. I don't really care about his politics. It's uh, this man, Fuad Ajami, and he okay. wrote. Now he has a book called "The Dream Palace of the Arabs," and 
I say controversial because, I mean, the man is, he was an open conservative in American circles. He championed uh, America's occupation of Iraq, not the invasion itself, but the occupation. He was perhaps very vocal in the first Iraq war, supporting the American mission. And he was, you know, just, he, he was not, was very comfortable calling himself an American. And he would sometimes, I think, just to rub his, his Arab audience the wrong way, he would say, we the Americans, and this pissed a lot of people off. I mean, his name is Fuad Ajami at the end of the day. Yeah. But his politics aside, and I don't really think his local American politics are that interesting, at least when I, when I read him, uh, his, his, his writing, his craft is so brilliant. And there's one, one chapter of this book that I, I look back on regularly, and it's chapter two. It's the suicide of Khalil Hawi. Mm. And it's literally a story about AUB. Yeah. And a professor at AUB. Who killed himself. Killed uh, himself. After the 82 invasion, I think. The Israelis yeah. are invading, he kills himself in the yes. process. And the reason I love this story, forget, again, forget the petty politics, forget all that stuff. It's one man who can't make up his mind. His identities are shifting all the time. He's pan-Arab, he's pan-Syrian, he's Lebanese, he's pro-Palestinian, he's anti-Arafat, he's a Ras Beiruti. Sometimes he's more Greek Orthodox, sometimes he's less. And he loves Beirut. And I think he represents its complexities. And the only way he sees out is by killing himself. I, I, for me, I learned a lot about all of these ideologies, all of these sort of sub-stories. Yeah. I learned a lot about AUB as well through a few pages of a story. Yeah. And that, I think, goes back to something. It's storytelling. In your, in your sense, it's exploring an archive and reading letters among individuals maybe a hundred years ago. And for me, what turned me on to the whole enterprise is being able to finally maybe see the layers and appreciate each one. And then yeah. within each layer, begin to explore them one by one. As long as it's, as long as it's a good story, I don't care. I'll read it. And uh, I also began to appreciate that even if everyone you know in your circle in Lebanon sees someone's name and calls him names calls him vulgar names maybe and maybe even goes as far as saying he's an agent and he's a he's an israeli spy and whatever you want to call him whatever the fact is his lebanese guy who lost lebanon the way he loved it and he's writing about things that mattered to him and khalil hawi resonated with him i'm like you know what i'll read it and i love that i love being able to capture an audience through a few pages of history. Interesting, and, yeah. Yeah. Hey, very, very interesting, man. Lano, uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed this kind of storytelling. To be honest, I mean, I've, I've, I read a lot of, like, history papers. They can be sometimes dull, of course, and sometimes they get into these uh, details that maybe are nonsensical, or they might be reading too much into something. But all, all in all, overall, I, I, 
I was fascinated. يعني I still do. I would rather read those than read the philosophy papers. صراحة لأنه yeah. I learn more from from these. يعني كعم نحكي at at an academic level. You know. So بس yeah. you know, So oh, of course this, I'll 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 look this book up. Come in because I'm. يعني سعيد أبو ريشة's book. I don't know if you've read it. No, no, uh, I haven't. Man, it's fascinating. It's it's very interesting. The stories he tells you, the yeah. uh, the going to the Saint George Hotel bar, and you see all these uh, correspondents. And it's nice. It's at, nice to at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you imagine like you're there, and you get and to live then, it. As it turns out, this guy is 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 the is a spy who yeah. runs over. Yeah, who escapes overnight and. And then the so I got to learn a lot about uh, about yeah about Lebanon and Beirut and and yeah. and it gives you an idea of how things were and uh, yeah so it's uh, I do see where so I yeah now I I have a better idea about the storytelling part that you're as, as you described it kind of I like and I agree with you I like complicated people. So that's what draws me to you and your your episodes, and I look forward to meeting you in person somewhere on planet Earth. And if yeah. you're leaving Lebanon and you're heading to the Netherlands, I'll see you there, in your course. Uh, yeah, I'm not heading to the Netherlands anytime soon, unfortunately. It's uh, that one is just for the course. Well, if if it happens, maybe next year. Maybe next year. But it's, but I, it's a serious project. It is a serious project. No, no, I saw and I saw even people commenting, and you're like, no, 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 this is real. <laughs> yeah, because it may have to do with psychedelics. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. No, but at the end of the day, I like I like complicated people in a in a place that turns to conformity. It's something I, I don't find attractive at all. So I like individuals with a lot of varied ideas. I consider you one of these people. I, I enjoyed the discussion very much, to be honest, and uh, thank you for this. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.